All right, well, good morning again. Let's make our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 this morning. So we're going to continue our journey through Paul's first letter to the Corinthians uh, that we started back in February, I believe. So we will continue to make this journey through the letter. And as you guys make your way to the 15th chapter, uh, let me just remind you that Paul is writing this letter to a church that he knew very well. In fact, uh, he spent 18 months with these people while he planted the church and he got leadership in position and uh, prior to him departing to continue his church planting mission. And so now he's in this place where he's received letters concerning how the church is actually doing. And it's, it's rather alarming. There's uh, lots of issues happening inside the church in Corinth. And so he begins these first 11 chapters addressing the issues that had taken place. He's trying to give them items that they can correct, things that they can work on. And so he specifically starts off in chapter 1 by addressing the biggest issue in the church in Corinth, and that was divisiveness that they had begun to become divided within the church. And the issue that they had, the divisiveness, was really rooted in their own carnality, is what Paul says. So they believed in Jesus, and yet they were carnal because they were led by their flesh. They were directed, responding to what the flesh wanted. And the issue with that, among other things, is the flesh always wants to take care of itself. And so the flesh is selfish. So they were very selfish people trying to take care of number one. And and what Paul eventually leads to in chapter 11, verse 1, is he leads to saying, look, if you want to know what it looks like to be led by the Spirit instead of by your flesh, uh, you can look at me. Imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And so a bold statement by the Apostle Paul, but because of the grace that God had had upon him, he could say that very boldly. And so he's encouraging them to follow after him. And for all of them, as a group, they all thought they had a word to share. They all wanted to speak. They all wanted in on the action, which is why as we look through chapters 12 through 14 concerning spiritual gifts, Paul wanted to make it very clear that they were to be orderly. They had been given a tremendous amount of gifts by God. The word that we looked at in the Greek was the word charisma, which has in its root the word charis, which is Uh, Greek for the word grace. You see, these were gifts. These were graces from God. They weren't uh, achieved by any great work of their flesh. This was just because God loved them, that he gave them gifts. But the problem that we still have to this day is we can often mistake uh, gifts for maturity. And they are very, very different. You see, uh, gifts are not a sign of maturity, but what is a sign of maturity is the fruit of the Spirit. What Paul writes in Galatians 5.22 is the fruit of the Spirit is love. And so if you don't have love, this is all just a big waste of time. You guys are a bunch of hot air is essentially what uh, Paul told them. That's the Brock Ashley version of what he was communicating in chapter 13. And this is the reason why he plugs chapter 13 between chapters uh, 12 and 14. He's trying to get them to understand, look, the fruit of the Spirit is love. This is the thing you're lacking. They were also lacking order, which is why, as we concluded our time last week, Paul said, look, let all things be done decently and in order. What I shared with you is the reason Jesus had the people at the feeding of the 5,000 sit down in groups of 50 was so that people could have access, so that order would be created, so that they could have access to the bread of life. He was trying to create order because he loved them. He cared for them. And so Paul's communicating this to them. 
Now, as we arrive in chapter 15, he's going to address another question they had, specifically around the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, the reason Paul has to address this issue in Corinth is because at this time, uh, the Corinthian church was being pressed in on all sides by the culture that surrounded them. And so they existed there in what is modern-day Greece. Corinth is still a city you can visit to this day. And the Greco-Roman culture, in particular the Greek philosophy, had permeated into the church. And one of the uh, things in Greek philosophy that they thought was completely ludicrous about the Christian faith was the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in it. They, they, They couldn't wrap their minds around it philosophically, and so they just dismissed it. They passed it off. And the other reason, really the most insidious reason behind this is, um, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then it doesn't matter what you do in these bodies. So this is really what was taking place in Corinth. They were living this uh, lifestyle where it was it was essentially the, the Las Vegas of the New Testament. I mean, it, this place was wild. In fact, um, sitting above the city was this building that I put up here on the screen uh, called the Temple of... Aphrodite. And it looked down on the city of Corinth. And what happened is every evening uh, in the temple, they had over a thousand temple priestesses. And they would descend down into the city of Corinth and uh, worship with people. But uh, these priestesses were actually temple prostitutes. And so you see, you understand the lifestyle that was taking place inside Corinth. And they had convinced themselves that what happens in these bodies is going to stay in the ground. So it didn't matter. Let it rip, tater chip. That's the way they were operating with one another. Now, this is what Paul is going to address in chapter 15 as he covers the resurrection. And we are going to take uh, two weeks to cover this chapter because, at least in my estimation, um, this is the greatest chapter in the New Testament on the resurrection. Uh, period. Paul is going to go to great lengths to explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ and its importance in our lives. So with that said, um, I've got a lot of notes for you. This is, by the way, why on those clipboards in front of you, you have uh, Bible study notes. I would always encourage you to jot things down. Take this back. We're going to go through a lot of text, a lot of things to consider. So underneath the welcome card that I would love for you to fill out, Uh, Underneath that are Bible study notes. I want to encourage you uh, to take notes as we make this journey through the first half of the 15th chapter. Paul begins by saying, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. And if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And Paul, so Paul starts by saying, remember, I declared to you the, the gospel. The word in the Greek is evangelion. This is where we get our word for evangelism. It, it simply just means good news. And what is the good news that they were sharing from the gospel? But it was just simply that Jesus Christ has given his life for your sins. That the God of the universe laid down his life for you on your behalf to pay a price that you could not pay. And he's now raised from the dead, so you now are new creations. And this isn't just good news, this is great news. And so Paul said, this is the gospel that we first shared with you, that you received in verse 1, in which you stand, by which you are saved. And now he's calling them to hold fast to that word that he preached. And so at the end of chapter 13, Paul said, I want you to abide in these things. Faith 
and hope and love, these three. And as we see faith and hope and love in this uh, first two verses of chapter 15, what we find is um, by faith you have received the promise. You have received through the grace of Jesus Christ. You now have salvation. So this is what you look like in your past. You now have set aside your past. You've now received this tremendous gift. By faith you've believed it. You've received it. In the present, where you stand, is you stand in the very love of Christ. This is what we shared when we covered uh, chapter 13. And this love is actually what picks you up and what carries you through the day. I don't know about you guys, but um, there's days where I don't know if I can get up. I don't know if I can make another go at this thing. And yet, because of the love of Christ, He comes alongside us, He picks us up, and He carries us. He, he, he brings us through the day. And then what propels us and continues in us is lastly hope. What kind of hope do we have? We have hope in the future. This is what Paul's saying. I want you to hold fast to the hope that you have. In what? In the resurrection. I want you to hold fast in the hope that this isn't the best God has to offer. He's got so much more in store for you. And so if you don't have that hope, I don't know where your hope resides. Now, verse 3, Paul says, For I deliver to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. So Paul's going to give them a reminder, a little history lesson, that Jesus the Christ died according to the Scriptures. And he no doubt had some of these Scriptures probably in mind. I just wanted to bring a few of them to your attention, like uh, Psalm 22. If you've never flipped through this psalm or given it a good read-over, when you do, you'll be shocked at the description that David gives a thousand years before Jesus would step foot on the earth of the crucifixion. Beginning with verse 1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I mean, it, it, is, it is a graphic detail of what Jesus would go through on the cross. If you advance in your Bible to Psalm 69, and you look there in verse uh, 21, you see, they also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. This is literally what took place as Jesus was on the cross. They gave him gall and vinegar to drink. And so we have descriptions showing the Christ on the cross, uh, giving his life for us. Isaiah chapter 50 is the prophet Isaiah. 700 years before Jesus would step foot on the earth, says in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 6. If I can get there, my sticky stuck together. I, have, I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out my beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. And so now you have the description of Jesus being put on trial, them beating him, punching him in the face, plucking out his beard, and spitting upon him. This is Isaiah mentioning it in Scripture 700 years prior to those events. And then if you fast forward to chapter 53, in verse 3 he says, He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised. And, he, and we did not esteem him. In verse 5, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. These are all words that spoke of the Messiah giving his life for us. Even down to Zechariah chapter 12, here in the middle of, actually towards the end of Zechariah, we see, I said to them in verse 12, 
If it is agreeable to you, give me my wages, and if not, refrain. And so they weighed out for me thirty pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, that princely price they set on me. So I took the thirty pieces of silver, and I threw them in the house of the Lord for the potter. Describing the very betrayal of Jesus, where Judas sold him out for, you guessed it, um, thirty pieces of silver. Being so ashamed over what he'd done, Judas goes back to the house of the Lord, and what he does is he, he throws the money that are on the floor at the feet of those in the Sanhedrin. And they, not wanting to collect the blood money, they, they gather it up, and they don't want to put it in the offering plate, so they take and they buy, um, you guessed it, the potter's field with that money. And so 500 years before Jesus would step foot on the scene, you have these vivid descriptions of what it would look like in his last days on the earth. Now, if we continue in verse 4, and that he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And so you have Paul saying in verse 3, he gave his life in accordance to the Scriptures, and then he also rose from the dead in accordance to the Scriptures. And if you look in the book of Jonah, you've got this picture of Jonah, a guy that doesn't want to go to Nineveh, but what you know happens from Bible school is he was swallowed by the great fish, only to three days later to be thrown up on the shores, and he proceeds to Nineveh to give a message of repentance. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, is the message Jonah ultimately gave to the people in Nineveh, and they were saved. No more vivid picture maybe in the Old Testament of the giving of a son and the resurrection of a son than in Genesis chapter 22. This entire chapter is concerning Abraham. Abraham gets a word from the Lord to take his only son, his only begotten son, Isaac, the son of promise, to take him all the way to, you guessed it, what is modern day Jerusalem, to Mount Moriah, a mountain on the edge of the city, and to sacrifice his only begotten son. And here you have Abraham making a journey three days up the mountain. For three days and three nights, his son is as good as dead. He's a goner. And as they make their way up the mountain, I love this picture. And oftentimes in Bible school, we don't get this all right because we picture Isaac as a little boy. But you understand, based on the timeline, Isaac was likely in his early 30s. He's carrying the wood of the sacrifice that he was going to lay upon on his back as they made their way on up the mountain. And as they made their way up, he looks at his dad. He says, Dad, we got the wood. We've got the fire. But where's the sacrifice at? Verse 8 of Genesis 22. And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. And so the two of them went together. And if you would go back into the Hebrew text and read uh, the way it was originally written, it actually reads, My son, God will provide himself the lamb. God will provide himself. And so as Isaac assembles the altar, please get the picture with me that as a 30-year-old man, there's no way that a 100-year-old Abraham was going to overpower a 30-year-old man and force him onto the altar, meaning Isaac would have willingly climbed on the altar as his dad gave him directions. He followed the will of the Father. And so up to the very moment where he was ready to plunge the knife into his son with tears probably rolling down his face and God said, all right, that's enough. Stop. The picture is complete. I wanted you to get this. And I want people thousands of years later to get this. 
And so they make their way back down off of that mountain, off of the edge of Jerusalem. And guess what? Isaac is raised from the dead. I mean, he was as good as a dead man. But three days later, Abraham has his son back. And so the joy that is there inside this picture, all the way back in Genesis 22. Now, if we fast forward to the New Testament, here's Jesus. He's speaking to all the naysayers. They're questioning him. They want him to show more signs. And so in verse 40 of Matthew chapter 12, he says, For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. You want a sign? This is the sign you're going to get. The Son of Man is going to be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Similarly, as he's debating, actually not debating in John chapter 2, he's ran the money changers out of the temple. He's chased them off, and the Pharisees come up. They want to, They say, look, who's giving you the authority? Who's giving you the right to do this? And in John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answering to them, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they think he's talking about a building. John goes on to say is what they didn't realize, none of them, is that he was talking about his own body the temple of God. And so, over and over again in Scripture, we see it abundantly clear that both the death of Jesus and His resurrection is laid out. This is what Paul's trying to get them to understand. Verse 5, he says, And that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve. And after that, He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present. But some have fallen asleep. And after that, he was seen by James and then by all the apostles. And so what uh, Paul is describing to them are eyewitness accounts to the resurrected Christ. So on the uh, testimony of two or three witnesses, it will stand according to the Old Testament. Uh, Paul's saying, look, there's way more than two or three that saw Jesus resurrected and alive. In fact, there's some of them still alive today. Go ask them about it if you don't believe what I'm saying. And so he communicates to them that Peter saw Jesus. That's Cephas that he mentions there. And the twelve, and even 500 people who gathered at one time, and many of them are still alive to this day that you can ask, including the half-brother to Jesus, James, that he mentions here in verse 7. Now that's important to me because you realize from Mark chapter 3 that James would go to visit Jesus along with his brothers, along with his mother and stand outside of the house he was teaching in, uh, not because they wanted to hear his brother teach, but because they didn't believe him. They wanted him to stop, to shut it down, stop with all the Messiah talk. Our brother's gone crazy. He didn't believe his own half-brother. And so what does Jesus do? But after the resurrection, he appears to James. And what you find is, um, just like James, if you come in to contact with the resurrected Jesus, your life is never the same again. It, it can't be. It can't possibly be. And so for James, his life would never be the same. He would go on to become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. That's why Paul mentions him. In fact, in church history, James was given a, a nickname. They called him Old Camel Knees, which is pretty funny to us. But um, they called him this because James spent so much time in prayer that he actually developed calluses on his knees that looked like the knees of a camel. Far cry from the guy who didn't even believe in Jesus years before. And so things change when we come into contact with the Lord. Uh, Paul's describing eyewitness accounts. In fact, in modern day, a, a gentleman named 
uh, Lee Strobel was a known atheist and a reporter for the Chicago Tribune. And his wife had accepted Christ. And so he went on this mission to actually disprove and discredit uh, Jesus and the resurrection. And so he, like a good reporter, he began to do research and, and, and develop the story and put it all together, all the evidence. And what uh, happened, if you read the book, The Case for Christ, it was released in the late 90s, is um, Lee Strobel became a believer. And one of the things he noted was that of all these uh, prophecies, over 300 prophecies concerning the Messiah, Jesus fulfilling over 100 of them in his first coming, is that as he's fulfilling all these prophecies, that the odds of one man being able to, to fulfill just eight of these Old Testament prophecies, not hundreds, eight, would be the same odds if you were to take a half dollars, fill up the entire state of Texas, two feet thick with half dollars, uh, take one, color it red, throw it out in the middle, and then go find uh, the one coin. On your first try, blindfolded. Those are the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of these prophecies. And so what Strobel came to the conclusion was, is because of all the evidence, all the eyewitness accounts, everything that he researched as a known atheist was that this man is truly the Christ. And he would go on to become a believer. And so eyewitness accounts are what Paul wants to bring up, including here in verse 8. Then, last of all, he was seen by me also as by one born out of due time. So Paul says, look, it's not only all these people who have seen the resurrected Christ. I saw him myself. You guys remember the story of Saul of Tarsus, who was a great persecutor of the church. He hated Christians. He sought to kill them until he was making his way to Damascus in Acts chapter 9 with a letter in his hand that he could drag people from their homes, have them jailed or murdered. And as he was on his way, a light came on the road. He was knocked off his horse, and the words said to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Paul's response in verse 5 was, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Is it hard for you to kick against the goats? Isn't it difficult to live this life where you're kicking against what you know is right, Paul? And so he calls him after he has seen the resurrected Jesus. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 1 to tell us that he spent three years in the deserts of Arabia being trained, essentially being taught as an apostle, no different than the other apostles had three years with him in the deserts of Arabia, of all the ways the Messiah is now come forth from the Old Testament. The Old Testament was truly revealed to Paul. This is what he's now sharing uh, from his vantage point. Now verse 9, For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. And so here's Paul writing to them. He's planted the church. He knows them. He loves them. Uh, they view him as some tremendous Christian. And how he describes himself here in this verse 9 is, I am the least of all the apostles because of the things that I've done. And so he's reflecting on his past, seeing it rightly, but what I love about this, if you if you read through Paul's writings chronologically, which if you wonder how we're going through Scripture, I'm trying to take you through the letters chronologically. So this is early in Paul's writings that we have in the New Testament. If you advance to Ephesians, which he writes years later, Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, what Paul says is, I am the least of all the saints. He actually says, I'm, the, I'm less than the least of all the saints. All the people who believe in Jesus, I'm, I'm less than all of them. 
If you go even further into his letters to the end of his life in 1 Timothy, he writes in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15, that I am the chief of all sinners. And the reason I bring that up is this is what maturity looks like as we grow in Christ. We see ourselves more and more clearly as to who we are outside of Jesus. Paul wasn't saying this to drum up sympathy. He was just saying, quite simply, but by the grace of God, there go I. I'm capable of any number of atrocities, any number of awful things is what I am capable of outside of Jesus. And so Paul, viewing himself more correctly, he was vaulting Jesus up even higher and higher on the throne as he went. And Jesus would say in Matthew 5, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of heaven. So our prayer should be, Lord, make me more poor in spirit. Help me to be able to see myself more rightly as I go and as I grow, as I mature as a believer. Now verse 10, Paul says, But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And His grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. And so here's Paul. He said, I'm in this spot, this former persecutor of the church. If you want to know how I got here, it's only by the grace of God. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And as he writes that, I couldn't help this week to think, as he's writing, I am what I am, that he might not have thought about Moses' first interaction with God there at the burning bush, Exodus chapter 3, when he, he's speaking to the Lord in this bush that apparently just stays on fire. He says, what should I tell people your name is whenever they ask me? And God responds to him in verse 14, and, the, and God said to Moses, I am who I am. Yahweh, it's translated in the Hebrew. Ego imi in the Greek. I am who I am. Whoever you need me to be in that situation, that's who I am. I am who I am. And so what Paul is saying is, I am who I am because of the great I am. He is who he is, therefore I can be who I am today. And as we advance in Exodus, if you skipped over to Exodus 34, Moses again, wanting to see the glory of the Lord, the Lord puts him in the cleft of the rock, and then he passes by Moses, and and God speaks to him in verse 6, and says this, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and in truth. And so as God passes by, he gives Moses a word speaking about himself. He says, Yahweh, Yahweh, Elohim, merciful, gracious, long-suffering. This is how God described himself to Moses. These first three words speak so profoundly to who God is. It speaks to his character. He is merciful. He does not give us what we do deserve. He is gracious. He instead gives us what we don't deserve. And then he is long-suffering. Thank you, God, that you're long-suffering. Aren't you so thankful for his patience? For him to wait for us to finally wake up and get it. This is what Paul is saying. He's not able to do all these things because of his effort. He wants to make it clear in chapter 15, look, I work harder than all the other apostles. He's not bragging about it. He's saying, I only do this because of the grace that God has had all my life. And so this is how he achieves it. He's not working to achieve, to earn the grace of God. He's working because of the grace of God. And if you get that, it changes everything. We don't have a have-to Christianity. We live a life of get-to. 
I get to go work hard for Jesus because he so loved me. So it's by his grace we can do these things. Now, as we continue, verse 11, he says, Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul says, therefore. And you guys know when you read that, you have to ask, what is it therefore? It refers us back to everything he just shared. Therefore, in light of all this grace that he's given us, how can we not share the gospel? Anybody that's come into contact truly with Jesus, how can you not share about the work that he's done in your life? And so these people had been given the gospel because of those who'd come into contact with the Lord. And how are people going to come into contact with the Lord if we don't speak to them? Right? Faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God is what Paul says in Romans 10. And so he's given them this word of God because of his faith and because of the grace of God, and now they can have faith passed down to them. Now, verse 12, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? And so Paul's now going to ask this question. If Christ has been resurrected, how is it that there are some in your gathering that say he is not resurrected? So for the next several verses, uh, Paul is going to go through a series of what-ifs. If that is truly the case, and Jesus is not resurrected, here's what it looks like. Verse 13, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty, and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God, because we have testified of God that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. Verse 17, And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile, futile, and you are still in your sins. And then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And so as Paul walks through the scenario of the what-ifs, he starts by saying, look, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then that means Jesus hasn't resurrected. That's Paul being Captain Obvious. That's what I am at my house often. Like, thank you so much, Captain Obvious. But here we have it. Paul's like, if there's no resurrection, then he's not resurrected. But if he's not resurrected from the dead, uh, please understand Then the gospel is not the gospel. It's not good news. It's false. And we're all a bunch of false teachers. And if we're all a bunch of false teachers, then the reality is, um, if Jesus just simply was a great guy who gave his life for your sins. If he gave his life for what Paul would say in Colossians, the handwriting of requirements that was against you, that was contrary to you, if those things were nailed to the cross and buried, but they stayed there, then you stayed there. You're still dead. You're dead in your trespasses. You're dead in your sins. And all this faith that we talk about, this is just one big, gigantic farce. It's a waste of time for everybody involved. He continues in verse 19, If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. And so if only in this life we have hope, then we're of all men most pitiable. If, if in this life the only hope we have is what we can do, what we can build, what we can gather in this life, then what's the point? What's the point of all this? You shouldn't be going out taking care of other people. You shouldn't be helping others. You know who you should be taking care of? Old number one. You should be building yourself up a kingdom 
right here and right now, in fact, make this place heaven. Go for it. If there's no resurrection from the dead and this is heaven, then for each of us, I shouldn't be here right now. I should be out with my jacked up pickup truck. I mean, I'm telling you, I'm going Motley Crue. Girls, girls, girls. That's the way it should be for all of us if this is heaven. But what you know, what all of us know, is that if this is heaven, this is one hell of heaven. There's so much death, so much loss. As I try to carve out my little heaven, what happens when when heaven gets taken away? What happens when when my health fails? I was speaking about a gentleman uh, yesterday, in fact, who who had made everything about this particular career that he, he had chosen. He had forsaken his family. He had forsaken uh, everyone he loved because of this particular thing that he loved to do. And it was a great career while it lasted until his health failed. And now as a result, he can no longer do this thing. And he's one miserable son of a gun. Why? Because that was God. God let him down. Heaven let him down. This this earth, this is the best this life has to offer. And so if our hope is right here and now, then it's hopeless. And this is what it looks like to follow a Savior that's dead. That's what Paul's trying to explain. If you're falling after a dead guy, that makes you dead just like him. And so he continues in verse 20. But now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. One of my favorite buts in all of Scripture. One of my favorite buts anywhere. But Christ is risen. He is not dead. You don't serve a dead Savior. All the evidence points to this. All of the the evidence points to it. And you know what else does? Your own hearts. Your own hearts cry that there's got to be something better. There's got to be something more than this thing, this place that I'm living in. And so this all points to the fact of what Paul says, he is the first fruits of the resurrection. He has been raised from the dead. Now, a few weeks back, I talked to you about Leviticus 23. There's these seven feasts there in Leviticus 23. And that at Jesus' first coming, he fulfilled all of those in the spring of those feasts, beginning with the Feast of Passover, where he became the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This feast where they would slay the lamb and put the blood over the doorpost so that the people in their house could be saved. Jesus became the fulfillment of that. His body was then buried at the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Leaven was a picture of sin. His body was buried on the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Only for then, the following Sunday after that Shabbat was known as the Feast of First Fruits. What they would do on the Feast of First Fruits is begin is they would bring in the beginning of the harvest. They would bring in the first fruits and they would offer it up to the Lord and they would celebrate. What you guys know is that pictures laid out is uh, for an agrarian society, the harvest was life. How could they feed if there was no grain? And so they were bringing in, celebrating life coming about. And so the first fruits of the resurrection mean that that is merely the beginning of the work of Jesus. Jesus, looking out over the people, he said, look, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. He knew there was a tremendous harvest to be had. 
And so there are more to come is the idea. We now can follow after him because he's the first fruits of the resurrection. Verse 21, for uh, since by man came death, by man should be capitalized in your Bible, also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive. But each one in his own order, Christ the first fruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. Verse 24, then comes the end. Excuse me, I'll back up to verse 23. So what Paul is communicating is, um, like Adam, and by the way, Adam in Hebrew is our word for man. That's what it means. So we are following after Adam. We have a sin nature as Adam had a sin nature. And so we are sinners because it is natural for us. Uh, In other words, uh, we're not sinners because we sin. Uh, We sin because we're sinners. It's what we do. We're good at it. And so we we sin because we're sinners, because we have been born with this nature. And by the way, if you want to get upset at Adam and the fall, and you're like, thanks a lot, Adam, for this, uh, please understand, that's the very best we can do. That's the best humanity has to offer. So if you think you could do better than Adam, uh, good luck to you. He was as pure as any of us. And so uh, Adam failed because of his nature problem. And as a result of his sin, we're now separated from God for all of eternity, and we know it. That's the part in our hearts that's crying out for something more. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11 that we have eternity that's been placed in our hearts. We've got this desire to fill that God-shaped hole, and man, we stuff it full of all kinds of things that just weren't meant to go in there. And they fail every single time. And so, he says, look, here's the deal. You, you realize in your heart that you've been disconnected from God. You have no access to the king any longer until Jesus. Until he is now raised from the dead. And now we have a new identity, an opportunity to have a, a new life, new creation. In fact, what Paul will write in 2 Corinthians, will be here in a couple months, uh, verse 17, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And so now we have an opportunity at new life. The old flesh has died. It goes by the wayside and new life is raised up in its place. And so this beautiful promise that exists. But the question for each of us is, what are you living after? Are you living after the nature of Adam? Or are you living after the nature of Christ? Because in Adam, The only hope you have is in death. Death just brings about more death. But in Christ, because he gave his life, we now have new life. And so there's this beautiful promise. We are set free from the shame and the guilt and and all of our past. This is what I would call uh, the U-Haul. I found this picture online. I loved it. I mean, you've got people that want to drag behind the hearse the U-Haul. Like, and this is how we operate. That all of the things that we've done wrong, as we're living under Adam, we feel like this follows us. But what I love as a new creation, if we get to talk to people and they remember you from your past, uh, hey, surely you're not a pastor of all things. I mean, are, are you? Are, are you really? I say. Oh, you knew Brock? Oh my gosh. You hadn't heard then. You you didn't hear? No, I didn't hear. What happened? Oh, he died. Yeah, he's he's dead. Oh, really? 
I'm so sorry. No, don't be sorry. Don't be sorry because in his place is a new creation. New life was raised. Nobody, nobody actually misses that guy, including me. So you understand, this is the opportunity we now have to, to unhitch the U-Haul that's coming behind the hearse that we think we have to drag on with us for all of eternity. The resurrection is the promise of that. In fact, the resurrection, if you consider Jesus paying the ultimate price on the cross, He died for our sins so they could be atoned for, then the resurrection three days later is the receipt that the payment was accepted. It's the proof the payment was good. If He stayed dead, then the payment wasn't accepted. But because He rose from the dead, we now get a raise and His resurrection is proof of that acceptance. Now, verse 24. Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God the Father when He puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. And the last enemy that will be destroyed is death. We do not fight against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities that your eyes cannot see. And so Jesus is determined to put an end to all those things. Put all those to death so that you and I can have new life. And the reality is, uh, you should know, is that he's already won. Revelation chapter 1, as he's communicating there with Paul, or with Paul, with John, in Revelation chapter 1, he, Jesus speaking says, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. He has in his hands the keys to hell and to death. That most scary of things, that thing that stops us in our tracks. Jesus has already got the keys. Positionally, he's already seated at the right hand of the Father, up on high. Practically, he is working this thing out for all of us, just like we are. We are seated with him, and yet practically, we're working out our salvation with fear and trembling. We're working on it. I am cleansed, and I am being cleansed. First John 1 John 1.9 says uh, we are cleansed by him, and yet we are being cleansed. He's cleaning us up as we go until the day we're made perfect. And so what we find here is that the only thing delaying him from putting all his enemies under his feet is love. That's the only thing stopping him from coming back today. If you ever question it, just remember, uh, think about where uh, you would have been just a few years ago if he would have come back. It's terrifying, isn't it? There's lots of us, me included. I don't make the cut. I don't want to know what happens, but I got a pretty good idea. I'm busting the gates of hell wide open. And so I'm thankful for God's patience. I'm thankful that he is long-suffering. I'm thankful that he is willing, because he loves us, to take his time to make sure all have an opportunity to accept him and spend eternity with him. But his promise, ultimately, is to put to death all of our enemies, including death itself. But that also means... He will put to death the death of our joy, the death of our peace, the death of our relationships. All these things that we're fearful will go away, will never go away. He will put to end the end of those things. We'll have all of eternity to enjoy it. Now, verse 27, as we wrap up. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, 
it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. And now, when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be made subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Paul here is quoting from Psalm chapter 8, verse 6 to begin with. And what he's communicating is that all authority has been given by God to Jesus Christ. The only one not subject to Jesus' authority, which is what Paul is referring to, is God himself. Which means everything you see, everything you can imagine, all the universe, all the power is all given to Jesus himself. And you know what he decided to do with it? Give it all up. Philippians chapter 2 says he emptied himself. He was equal with God. And yet, because he loved us, he gave it all up for you and I. He walked away from every bit of it to give his life for us. Why? Because he loves us. To purchase us back. This is what it means to be redeemed. To be bought back. This is what Jesus did. He gave his life for us so that we could be purchased back. And by the way, he didn't have an agenda. I mean, think about it. It's it's all his. By him having all authority, there could be nothing more that could be added to him. There was no hidden agenda. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, when we read through it, that love that does not seek its own. Jesus, personifying love, doesn't seek his own. He's not looking to add uh, something to him. We had nothing we could give him. He just simply wants a relationship with you, plain and simple. And as a result, because he so desperately desired a relationship with you, he gave up all authority. And now, he's going to go through all of eternity being the only one that still bears any scars whatsoever. When we look at him, we're going to see the scars in his hands. We're going to see the scar on his side. We're going to see the scars on his feet. And I share that with you, not because it's going to be a bummer when we're there for all of eternity. We're not going to look at that and lament and cry out. But what we're going to be able to do is look at that and go, that's how much he loves me. He loves me that much. To, to go through that, to endure that for me. And so it becomes this reflection for all of eternity to remember the price that he paid. Last place in Scripture we'll go as we wrap up. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and the length and the depth and the height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now abide in him who is able to do exceedingly and abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for the resurrection. Lord, thank you for reminders of how much you went through what you endured as a father to give up your only begotten son. Lord Jesus, for the price you paid, 
We cannot comprehend the height or the width or the breadth or the depth of how much you love us. But when we see this price paid, and we're going to have all of eternity, I believe, to try to wrap our minds around it. And I don't think we're ever going to get there, Lord. But we praise your name. We are so thankful that we are rooted and grounded in this promise. That there is a hope beyond this life. Father, help us to focus on that hope when today gets to be really, really hard. Lord, thank you for the hope of eternity. Thank you for the blessed assurance that we have in you, that we are going to be delivered into the life to come. Father, we praise you for the work you did on the cross. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the resurrection. It's in your name.